uh, which I can't remember right now, but uh, I know that it was appropriate. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die, I think is what we just got done singing. May that be true for all of us. May we persevere to the end. Well, I'm not sure if you have uh, noticed, but 1 Corinthians is not the easiest book uh, to preach through. And uh, especially here as of late, we've had some themes uh, that the text has brought to us that have been, shall we say, not the easiest preaching to be found in the Bible. We talked about uh, the beginning of chapter 7, sexual intimacy in marriage, uh, which was uh, both fun and terrifying, glad it's done. Uh, Then last week, we got to the matter of, of singles, whether they should marry or not, and the whole thing of burning with passion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, if it sounds like I am asking for a little bit of compassion and mercy, I am. <laughs> because this is not the easiest material to work through. And today is not, uh, is not either. We are working through uh, this book, 1 Corinthians, and one of our core values at the church is that all of God's word is inspired, which means that you don't just duck the hard passages and cherry pick the ones that you want to talk about. All of it is here. Paul writes to Timothy, and all of it is profitable so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped. So uh, when we come to hard passages, we've got to work our way through those as much as we do the, the sort of more easy ones. Today is a meat and potatoes kind of passage, and We're going to be faithful to the text, and we just want to let God's word uh, speak. That's the goal. And today we're on the subject. Last week was on the subject of whether singles should marry or not. Today is on the subject of whether married people should stay married or not. Remember that Paul is writing this letter in response to a letter that he got from this these Corinthians uh, at this church that he had planted in the, in the city of Corinth. So the first six chapters are, are Paul's concerns for them based on what he has heard is going on in the church. Chapters 7 through the end of the, of the letter are essentially Paul at answering questions that they had written to him in their letter. Now, if we assume that Paul is responding to these in the order that he received them, that would mean that the number one questions that these Corinthian Christians had were about relationships, marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage. Which means that what they were struggling with is largely the same things that we struggle with. And the reason that we struggle with these things is because marriage and relationships are really where the rubber meets the road in terms of our faith. It's one thing to say that you believe something, uh, to have a creed that you believe. It's another thing to actually put that faith into practice in the most intimate relationship on earth. And that's what marriage is. It is the most intimate, the most personal. That other person knows you better than anybody else on the planet. And so this is why it is the hardest context to make your faith uh, evident. But it is vital and it is, it is uh, essential. So we need to realize as we talk about 
uh, marriage and, and divorce, that the reason that these things happen are a result of the fall. Ever since the fall, marriage has meant that you have two sinners that are, that are together. So the whole matter of compatibility, there is no compatibility between two sinners. Both are selfish. Both are... Um, uh, Sin creates heart issues that are incompatible with making marriage uh, really work. And so it is only by the grace of God and the application of the gospel that two sinners can live in the same home and actually thrive. And that their marriage can be a, can be a blessing according to the blueprint that God has laid out. So, married Christians, if you're married here today, you are a sinner. And you are married to a sinner. And that is why it is hard. So as we talk about marriage and whether it's permanent or not in the matter of divorce and then remarriage, we also must do so with uh, tremendous grace. Because there is probably no other subject that has more tears associated with it than marriage and divorce. It is devastating to those who go through it. It is uh, devastating to the children who go through it. And so as we talk about it, I think we have to measure our comments with just a, a biblical grace and compassion for those who have suffered through these things. So what we have going on at Corinth is we have the question of whether or not married couples need to stay married. Complicating it was the fact that you had many uh, couples where one of the spouses had become a Christian and one had not. And so those spouses are like, what do we do? Like, do we got to stay in this or should we leave or separate? What, 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 is, uh, what is this all about? So let's come now to the text. And I'm basically going to just take it by the questions that we're we'll doing a little Q&A format with it. So here's the first question that Paul's going to answer. Are married Christians allowed to divorce? That's the question. Here now is the apostle's answer. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Here's what he says. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, right away, we, uh, we see that uh, this statement that Paul has to, to make to us today strikes against our modern-day sensibilities. To suggest that married people should stick it out is not particularly popular or uh, politically correct these days. It is quite common in our culture for marriages to, uh, to split up. I had somebody do a little research for me, and uh, they came back with a study that the Barna Group had put out. And the Barna Group is a, is a Christian polling kind of organization. George Barna is probably the best-known Christian pollster. Um, they came back with a study, this was a year ago, that showed a national average of 33% of marriages across our country end in divorce. The percentage among evangelical Christians, though, is just slightly under the national average. And Barna comments, here's, what, here's the comment that they make. There no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an 
unavoidable rite of passage. Interviews with young people suggest that they want their initial marriages to last, but are not particularly optimistic about that possibility. There is also evidence that many young people are moving toward embracing the idea of serial marriage, in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. So we live in this kind of no-fault uh, no fault culture where all you have to do to get divorced is to cite irreconcilable uh, differences, which is a rather funny thing, uh, I think, because if you were to talk to any of the couples that have been married for like 50 years, they would all say that for 50 years we have had irreconcilable differences. So uh, it's, it's, you know, it, is, uh, it is certainly an easy out. Now, I am sure that probably some of you are, are sort of reminiscing about the, the good old days when, you know, back in the good old days, people, people didn't do that. It was, it, was, it was different. And they think back to, you know, when the Bible times, I mean, everybody in the Bible times, they got married, they stayed married, and then they died. That was just the way that it is. Wrong. Divorce has been a part of uh, the story, the biblical story, from the beginning, and even really in the, in the New Testament. In fact, in the Greco-Roman world that Paul is writing here, it was easier to get divorced than it is for us today. Now you say, well, it's really easy to get divorced today. Well, you still got to file paperwork. You got to go through the state. You got all these other things. This is how you got divorced in the first century. You ready? Now we're divorced. You might go through the state. There might be some paperwork, but you didn't really have to do anything other than walk out. Or for the man, this was more common, for the man to just say, I'm done with you. Bye-bye. And now you're divorced. And so it was rampant in the Greco-Roman world. It was also very common in the Jewish world. i get to that in just a moment. But here's what Paul says now, is that he... He says in verse 10, to the married. And you'll notice in verse 12, he says, to the rest. And then goes on to talk about couples that where one is a Christian one, and one is not. So what he's, who he's talking about in verse 10 are Christian couples in the church. Okay, so where both are Christians in the church, I give you this charge. The husband should not divorce the wife. The wife should not divorce the husband. Now, there's an interesting and potentially confusing little uh, phrase in here as well I want to explain to you. It says, he says, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, I, not the Lord. Which is like the opposite. So to the one, he says, the Lord's saying it, not me. To the other, he's saying it, I'm saying it, not the Lord. Okay, what is this talking about? What is he referring to here? Well, Realize that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, none of the Gospels had been written. You did not have a canon. You did not have a New Testament uh, like we do today. So if we were to talk about this, we'd say, well, turn to Mark chapter 4 or Luke chapter 7. There was no Mark. There was no Luke. There was no Matthew. There was no John. So Jesus' teaching at this point in the story was the apostles telling people what Jesus said. Kind of an oral tradition at this point. And so what he's doing here is he is saying, listen, what I'm about to say to you is something that Jesus said. This doesn't come from me. This is from Jesus. And then in verse 12, when he says, 
I, not the Lord. He just is meaning, I don't have a Jesus quote to refer to on this, but I'm still speaking with apostolic authority. So that's the distinction uh, that he's making. Now, what is he talking about that the Lord said on this matter? Well, now we have this teaching in Matthew 19 that Paul is referring to. And if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn there. I want to read the entire passage. This is important. Matthew 19. What's going on here is there was a raging debate in the Jewish world on the subject of the permanence of marriage. And the disciples come, not the disciples, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him a question. And this is a question intended to put him on the spot. And you see that in verse 3 where it says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? All right, now let's talk about this. What they are referring to here is a debate that centered on Deuteronomy 24 verse 1. Old Testament law. And the debate was what it meant when Moses said that a man could divorce his wife if he found in her, here's the word, indecency. What does indecency mean? Well, there were two schools of thought on this at the day. The first one was the more uh, liberal approach to what indecency meant. And this was known by the teacher Hillel, who, so it's the Hillel position on divorce basically said that it was whatever the man decided it was. Whatever the man decides that it means. So this could be any offense. And these included officially in this position, this is from history, I'm not making this up, uh, a woman who walked about with her hair down. Done with you. Goodbye. Speaking to men on the street. Speaking disrespectfully of her husband's parents in his presence. Now some of you are like, we would be so divorced right now. (laughs) Here's one, this is true. An improperly cooked meal. (laughs) You burn the toast, goodbye. All right, I'm done with you. So this was the liberal position, okay? Whatever the man... Decided it meant. The more conservative one is known as the school of Shammai. And Shammai taught that it was offenses of marital impropriety. Short of adultery. Now the reason that they didn't have to include adultery is the law already made a provision for how to get out of a marriage if your spouse cheated on you. And what did they do to a cheating spouse? They stoned them. John 8, you remember, they found the woman caught in adultery. They bring her to Jesus and say, should we stone her or shouldn't we? And the whole thing that went on, uh, he was without sin, cast the first stone. It's based on the teaching that if you were caught in adultery, uh, you were done for. So uh, they didn't have to make any provision for adultery. uh, But Shammai said that it was marital impropriety. So what you see in this is that the man had all the control The woman had no say. This is in the Jewish culture. She did in the Greco-Roman. A a Greco-Roman woman could divorce her husband. A Jewish woman was not allowed to. So this is the context that these uh, Pharisees asked Jesus about the subject of divorce. Here now is Jesus' response. Verse 4. 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? This is the Deuteronomy 24 that I mentioned. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So, Jesus' response to them is now to go back to the, back to the original plan, the blueprint that God intended when he designed marriage in the first place. In Genesis 2, uh, God brings Eve to Adam and now makes this statement. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. And we've taught this before that marriage is leave, cleave, weave. Want to do that again? <laughs> leave, cleave, weave, that that is a biblical marriage. So God's plan from the beginning is permanence. And this is what Jesus says. What God has brought together, let not man separate. So that marriage is, is a, something that people do, but in reality, it is a God thing. Husbands and wives, your marriage is a God thing. God has brought you together. And since it is a God thing, Jesus says, man is not to separate that because God has done it. And so quickly now, the Pharisees realizing that he's taking a very strict line on what is uh, right and what is not, they say to him, now wait, 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 wait a second. What about Deuteronomy 24 where Moses commanded them to give that woman a certificate of divorce? Jesus says, listen, this is not the way that it was from the beginning that God did this and Moses did this to regulate divorce, not to encourage it. In other words, the realities of a fallen world are such that within marriage, tremendous pain can be done to the spouse. And acknowledging that, Moses, and the, what he calls the hardness of heart, Moses regulates how that divorce is to happen. He is not encouraging it. He is not endorsing it. He is merely regulating it. The biblical endorsement is for permanence in marriage and for a man and a wife to stay together. Now, there's a reason for this, and you got to get this. Got to get this. The reason that God values permanence goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago Regarding what marriage is at its core, marriage is a picture of what God is like. The Godhead, within the Godhead, plurality and unity. Marriage is plurality and unity, three in one trinity, two in one marriage. That God designed marriage to picture what he is like. God also designed marriage to picture the love that the, Jesus has for the church, Ephesians 5. So you have these two glorious pictures. God 
in the, in, within his personhood, Jesus in the church, marriage is a beautiful and sacred reflection of what those two realities are all about. And God values the picture, much like we do. Like if, if, if you have, if you send, if you send your neighbor uh, a Christmas card and it's got a picture of your family on it and you go over to their house later on and there's your picture on the fridge of your family and you look closely at the picture and you see that like everybody's eyes are poked out and they, they draw mustaches on people and, and somebody like the kid got there and cut, you know, the mom's head and put it on the baby and the baby's head's on the dad and it looks like a Picasso painting, you know, and you look at that and you go, what? Well, I don't like that. Why wouldn't you like it? Because the picture is of something that is very sacred to you. When somebody messes around with the picture, you take it personally. They're messing around with me. They're saying something about how they view me. And this is what it is with marriage. It is a picture. It is a sacred picture of a glorious reality, God. And so the higher view you have of God, the higher view you're going to have of marriage. Which, of course, is why in our culture you take God out of the picture. Now you can, you know, uh, define it any way that you want. The word doesn't mean anything. You can marry your car someday. The people will do this, I'm sure. Because God's not in the picture. But when God is in the picture, now it is a glorious, it is a glorious thing. It is a sacred thing. And marriage is sacred. And God's people had better get why it is. It is not just a piece of paper. It is not just a man and woman cohabitating. It is not a pretty ceremony. It is about God. And it draws its meaning and significance from the nature of the Godhead and the relationship of Jesus with his church. So within the congregation of God's people, marriage needs to be held high. And permanence needs to be held high because it pictures what God is like. Would God the Father ever divorce God the Son? Would Jesus ever send away the church? The questions are absurd because God's love is permanent. And when a marriage is permanent, it reflects powerfully what God is like. And that's the way that God designed it to be. So Jesus here takes a very strict line and says, if anyone divorces and remarries except for marital unfaithfulness, they are committing adultery with their new spouse. And this is the teaching that Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 7. They should not divorce. If they do, he says, they should remain unmarried or be reconciled with their ex-spouse. Now I'm going to come back to this at the end of this message, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit more about like what that means. Here's the second question. What about those married to unbelievers? What are they what should they do? Now this was a very difficult issue as the gospel spread throughout uh the world. You know, here now today we have generational uh Christianity, people that grew up in the church and and, you know, uh, so if, as you go to marry, you sort of think about, mm, I wonder who's a godly man, who's a godly woman that I can marry. And so you have really this sort of thing that's going on. That's not what was going on back then. 
They were pagans. They were they worshipped at the at the at the temple of Aphrodite. They probably got married at the temple of Aphrodite. The gospel invades into the city of Corinth. And now you have people that, you know, you have these couples and they hear Paul preaching and one of them goes, I believe that. The other one goes, that's stupid. All right. Now you've got a, you've got this couple, they got to make it work. Like what's, what's going on? And the Christian one of the two is saying, I don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this. Imagine what it's like to suddenly find yourself married to a Christian. And some of you can relate to this. Where all of a sudden the woman or the man that you married is not the same woman or man that you knew or that you married in the first place. She's got different, like, priorities now. She's got a different thing that she's about. Her heart seems different. She's not like into some of the things that we used to be into. She's into other things that are really important to her, but I don't get it. I mean, if you're suddenly married to an unbeliever, you probably are like, what spaceship came and took my wife or my husband? She is not, he is not the person that I married. So this creates all kinds of complexities. And oftentimes, the unsaved spouse is not, that all ex- not all that excited to find themselves married to a Christian. So the Christian spouse is wondering, do I stay? Do I leave? Do I separate? Do I divorce? I want to know. And this is what Paul now addresses beginning in verse 12. Here's what he says. To the rest I say, I not the Lord. We know what that means, right? He's not quoting Jesus, speaking with apostolic authority. This is Paul speaking now. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So the answer to the question about whether they should stay married or not is, what are the desires of the unbelieving spouse? If the unbelieving spouse wants to stay, then you stay in the marriage. If the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, then you let him or her go. That's what he is saying. Now, Paul gives two reasons for this. Here's the first one. The reason to stay, number one, is for the spiritual influence on the unbelieving spouse. That's verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now you can look at that, couldn't you? If you looked really carefully, and if you really wanted it to say this, you could look at the made holy there in verse 14, and you could say, ah, so by staying, that means that I save my spouse. Because after all, it says that they are made holy. Is that what it means? Well, now, it seems like last week, didn't we say that when you can't understand one portion of Scripture, you always interpret it in light of the rest of Scripture? And doesn't the rest of the Bible make it clear that we are not saved because of somebody else's faith? 
that I don't, I, I'm not redeemed because of my mama's faith or my papa's faith or my grandma's faith or my children's faith or my husband's faith or my wife's faith. Saving faith is personal. It is whether I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that Christ has raised him from the dead. Romans 10, 9. So it can't mean that by staying there, somehow you sort of like they get in on your coattails. It's not what it means. So what then does it mean? Well, the sense of it is that marriage puts the unbelieving spouse in a context of spiritual influence towards the gospel because they are living every day with somebody whose life has now been transformed by Jesus Christ. And that this is a compelling witness to the reality of the gospel. And the goal by this, of course, is that this unbelieving spouse, over time, would see the reality of a risen Savior lived out in their husband or wife and would come to the point where they would say, I believe it too. This is 1 Peter 3, 1, written to wives, where it says to them, don't nag your husband about the gospel. Win him without words. There is an influence. There is an aroma. There is an atmosphere of spiritual truth that a spouse who loves Jesus will cast over the marriage and in the home. And we know this to be the case, do we not? I mean, if I really wanted to get down and kind of go row by row, we would find a number of couples in this room right now where one of them became a Christian and began to have an influence on the other and eventually the other spouse received Christ as well. So we know that this is the case. We've seen this lived out in our own church story. So, first reason is for the sake of the unbelieving spouse. Secondly, is for the spiritual influence of the children. This is verse 14. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Okay, they are holy. Does this mean that by you staying, they're automatically into heaven? No, we just covered that, right? It means that they are under the influence of the gospel. These children. And by the way, this is the way that it's supposed to work, even if both parents are Christians. So if right now you're saying to yourself, well, this section isn't for me. I, you know, we're both Christians. We don't need to sort of be listening right now. No, look at what the Apostle Paul is assuming about a parent who is a Christian. That they are going to influence their children towards the things of God. That their life is going to be a witness to the reality that Jesus Christ can change your life. And when this is done in the home, it is a compelling witness for children to receive Christ as well. It makes the gospel attractive. And so parents, let me ask you right now, what are you doing in your home that is influencing your children spiritually. What are you doing? Are your kids growing up seeing their mom and dad living out the gospel? And that means in your imperfections. Your imperfections. But are they seeing that? Is there a sense of God in the home? Do they see you praying? Do they see you reading your scriptures? Do they see you serving Jesus and get the idea that this is something really important to you? Because if you are not doing that, you are not 
influencing your children towards the gospel and in some ways bringing them to church and acting like you're all Christian and then going home and not living it out, you are actually doing the opposite of that because they think that you are hypocrites and there is nothing to it. How many children grow up in Christian homes and they walk away and they say, listen, I just saw hypocrisy in the home. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. So parents, live it out. Do not be secretive about your faith in the home. You're having an influence on those children. Now, by the way of grace, I also want to say that there are no guarantees with children. Okay? I've known families where they do that. Three do, one doesn't. So... There are, there's no formula here. This is no guarantee. Don't look at this. Well, if we live it out, then obviously our kids will grow up and, and be missionaries. Okay? That's not the case. But I can guarantee you, if you live hypocritically in the home, they're not going to want anything to do with it. Influence your kids for the gospel. At the end of your life, it will be the one thing that matters to you the most. Now, I have an encouragement here as well. Here's what Paul is saying. One godly parent in the home is sufficient to strongly influence the children for the gospel. Just one. Now, I say that as an encouragement to the functionally, spiritually single moms that we have in our church. Now, by functionally sing, uh, s- uh, single, what I mean by that is that there are, there are dads who are obviously not Christians and are not a part of this at all. Sadly, there are also, and I'm, I'm saying to moms here because it almost always is this way. Sadly, there are also parents where the dad makes some sort of quasi-spiritual attempt. But in terms of discipling his children, the mom is essentially a spiritually single mom in the home. So I want to say something to those spiritually single moms. This should be like one of your favorite verses in all of the Bible. To look at this and to realize that the Apostle Paul is saying to you that your life lived out before your children can powerfully influence them towards the gospel. And it is one reason to stay in that marriage and we want you to know our hearts go to you our church wants to help we want to do what we can and this is this is so i just i feel like i've just i I just want to take the grace that this verse has and just like because we have so many women who live this out by way of encouragement let me tell you about my two best friends growing up Brian Woodbury, Matt Hundley, two best buds, okay? In both cases, uh, mom was spiritually there, dad was not, both cases, okay? So you have uh, both of their moms were, they weren't like, you know, Christian superstars. They're not like people that, you know, they would, you know, be up giving devotions and leading things and all that. They were faithful, sort of behind-the-scenes servant type of moms, Uh, not flashy, none of that, but they did their best to raise their children Christian, teaching them. And I I can tell you this, 
I can't, well, I can't even tell you how many times I was riding in vehicles with them as we're being hauled to Awana and we're being hauled to kids' events and youth group and all that. I spent like half of my growing up, I think, in the back seat of their cars just riding along. And there's, there's a godly mom, I'm taking my kids to Awana, right? Week in and week out, and there we are in the back just like, you know, riding along, uh, just being friends. But over time, that spoke to my two buddies. And I can tell you right now, Brian Woodbury lives on the south side of Minneapolis. He is actively involved in a thriving church there, has you know, taught Sunday schools for adults, and he's raising his children, clearly Christian, and it has got to be just a total joy to Mrs. Woodbury. Matt Hunley, who grew up in a, this was a, not, not like a functional sort of home situation, faithful, godly woman who's one of my heroes, his mom. Today, pastors a church in Albert Lee, Minnesota, and probably right now is delivering a sermon to his church. And if you could go back in time with me into the home context there, you would go, Matt Hunley will never, ever do that. How did Matt go from there to preaching a sermon on June 14th, and? Nine, it was a godly mother who prayed for his, her children and who did all she can to raise them Christian. And I say to you single moms here, or you functionally, spiritually single moms, you be encouraged and you keep it up. And someday, there's no guarantee, this is not a guarantee, this is not a guarantee, but someday, even if your children do not embrace it, you will look at what you did in this life and you will say, I did my best. And maybe... Maybe God will use it to bring them into the realm of salvation. Which, what could a mom want more than that? So you hang in there. You hang in there. Now, I gotta, I gotta get going here, okay? Now, verse 15. What happens, what happens if the unbelieving spouse wants out? Here's what he says in verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, this is a very important verse in the whole discussion about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And it hinges on what is meant by the word, translated in the ESV, enslaved. This is also translated uh, under bondage or bound. In such cases, the sister, the brother or sister is not bound. Bound to what? Or enslaved to what? And now, on this question, we are back to the purpose of marriage in the first place. Is marriage permanent or not? And Jesus has said, clearly by design, it is permanent. One man, one wife, one life. However, in the complexities of a fallen world, God has given three circumstances, biblically, where A divorce can be biblical, i.e. not sin, and where remarriage also can be biblical and not sin. So let me just walk through these with you. Here's the first one, and this is maybe an obvious one. The death of a spouse. The death of a spouse ends that uh, obligation to permanence in the marriage. He's going to say that in verse 39. And that 
now widow or widower, is free to remarry if they should so choose. And it is entirely righteous. It is entirely to be celebrated. So, the death of a spouse. Secondly, is adultery. Adultery. Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, which we read earlier, both say this. Here's what Jesus says. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now let's ask the question, why would divorce and remarriage be allowed for adultery? Remember back to uh, chapter 7 at the beginning when we talked about what sexual union is, and also in chapter 6 when Paul says that would I join myself to a prostitute? He talks about how he is now one with the prostitute. Sexual union is a unity. It is a unity more, more than just body. It is a unity of personhood. It is a unity of um, a spiritual unity. So when a spouse unites with somebody who is not their spouse... They are bringing into this picture a third person, which so distorts the picture that God has now said by Jesus' words, if that spouse, the victim spouse, should choose to end the marriage, they not only can do that biblically, they also can now be free biblically to remarry the victim spouse. Not the one who has committed the offense. Now, I want to emphasize something that this is only an option. This is not, and I would call it option B. Option A is always to apply the gospel and to forgive and to reconcile. And we have had the privilege, I guess you would say, here of walking many couples through reconciliation on the other side of adultery. So let me just make that clear. We are promoting forgiveness. We are promoting permanence. But biblically, the spouse is, uh, the victim spouse is free. Now, when I say applying the gospel, what I mean by that is summarized by what I, a friend of mine whose wife, there's a story of a friend of mine, his wife went away on a corporate kind of junket thing. I think she got intoxicated. And she cheated on him one time away. Came back, confessed it immediately, was torn up about it. I'll remember what he, I remember what he said to me. He said, this is a man that truly understood God's forgiveness of his own sin. Really, one of the, one of the more remarkable guys that I've known in this regard. He said this, how can I not forgive her when God has forgiven me what he's forgiven me? And they forgave reconciled and have gone on now for many years and are doing great. And that is plan A. If you come to seek counsel with us, if this is something that you're going through, we are going to encourage you to apply the gospel. And this is conditioned on the other spouse, repenting, seeking reconciliation for sure, but we are going to promote permanence. So adultery is the second. Here's the third. Abandonment by an unbeliever. And this is the passage now that we are on. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 through 16. When an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage and says, listen, you are not the person that I married. I am so out of here. 
God says here, God has called us to peace. Let him or her go. And now it says, you are not bound under such circumstances. In other words, you are not bound to the obligation that marital vows entail to reflect the permanence of the Godhead and the permanence of Jesus' love for the church. And with that, by the way, that believing spouse is now free to remarry. A biblical divorce always means that there is freedom then to be remarried. Okay, so now I've just said that, and right now I know that in the room there are people going, oh, I don't, Pastor Steve, my sister has got like this friend and she had this thing happen to her. And like, how would that apply to that? Or Pastor Steve, uh, what about this verse over here? La, la, la. I have, I know that there are many questions. I, can, I do not have time to answer all of them or any of them now. <laughs> so I am going to get to more of this in two weeks. Next week, we're at Maryville High School. We're gonna have kind of a stadium message on biblical masculinity. And then we'll get back to this in two weeks. So hold your horses and hopefully we'll try to answer them. Now, Big picture. Okay, let's step back. Big picture. What are we to take from what Paul has to say here? If these are the only three reasons that a marriage is to be dissolved, what should that tell us about what God values in regards to permanence in marriage? It ought to tell us that God values it, right? That this is a Huge thing to God, a husband and a wife loving each other and staying together. And what Jesus says and what Paul says was radical teaching in the day. And it is radical teaching right now in our culture. Where people just sort of, you know, I'm not into this so much. I think I'm going to move on. And I think what we ought to take from this is to realize that marriage, realize the sacredness of marriage. Again, it is not just a piece of paper. It is not just two people living together. It is not redefined by the legislature. It is not uh, a, a pretty ceremony to begin with. It is a reflection of God and Christ in the church. And when God's people have a high view of God and Jesus in the church, they are going to have a high view of marriage. And so let me ask you today, married couples, please listen to me. As you look at your marriage, spouse, as you look, husband, as you look at your wife, do you see her for who she is? Do you realize that your marriage in God's eyes is a holy and sacred thing? That if you were to ask God right now, what do you think of our marriage? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I'm so for you guys. Wives, do you look at your husband and do you see him for what he is truly? To value him and to esteem your marriage and to hold it high. This thing that you have between you is a glorious reality. Or not. Husband, would your wife say that you value it that way? Wife, would your husband say that you value it that way? Or, 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 over time has somehow the value of your wife and the value of your husband and the sacredness of what this thing is somehow been demeaned. We hear it all the time, couples, oh, she's this and he's that and our marriage don't matter to me and all of this. And when that is going on, God is being diminished. A high view of God will always mean a high view of marriage. So couples, I just want to challenge you today. 
with the value and the glory of the permanence of your marriage? Do you see it that way? And if you don't, and if you know that your spouse right now is thinking that you don't, as your pastor, let me plead with you. Do not simply hear a message like this and say, well, that's a nice thing to think about. Thank you very much. Today, as you leave, get your car, go to a coffee shop. I would love if all, every coffee shop in this whole area just packed out. All Bethel couples sitting down and saying, let's talk about this. Have we demeaned our marriage? Is there, is there, honey, what am I doing that is not valuing you? That is not esteeming you the way that God esteems you and our marriage. Talk about it. Ask one another. I guarantee you, if you do that, there will be just in having that conversation, there will be a raising of the bar of your marriage. And God would love it. Because right now, if you're saying to yourself, well, we've been married for 40 years. Don't talk to me about permanence in marriage. It's not just sticking it out, although that is a part of it. It's not just sticking it out. It is thriving. It is thriving in your love for one another. And that's what God is aiming for. And as you do, it is a powerful witness of the reality of Jesus Christ in this world and in this culture. Let me give you two examples. Two quick stories. Number one. Well, the second one's not so quick. Uh, First one. We have a family in our church. Within their immediate family, okay? So, like, quasi-immediate family. There are 30 divorces. 30. All right? This couple has been married for over 20 years. Guess what their family asks them? How do you do it? How do you do it? And guess what their response is? Well, you know us. It's not us. We're the same blood, same DNA. This is the difference that Jesus Christ makes. It's not us. It's, it's the Lord. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, but what, what is it? And then, you know, two more divorces in their life or something. And then they come back and go, what is your secret? It's the Lord. We've been telling you it's the Lord. Okay, okay, we know that whole spiritual thing. But what really, what is the secret? It is a powerful testimony to Jesus Christ when a Christian couple remains married and they thrive. The family can't get over it. Second story. And this is one of my all-time favorite stories, okay? All-time favorite. I have never told this story before. But we have a woman in our church. She is an elderly woman. I don't know if she's in this service or not. But she is one of my heroes, okay? She's one of my heroes. You would never notice this woman. She is, she is elderly. She is frail. Uh, she's one of these women, perhaps in the hallway, you would sort of just sort of brush by her. She kind of shuffles through the hallways of the church. And, and, uh, you know, this is, this is, if you're to rank the perceived, like most spiritual, spiritually happening people in our church, she's probably not making the top 10, top hundred, top thousand, probably not. 
Because nobody notices her, largely. Let me tell you a story about this woman. When I first came to Bethel, this is now uh, almost 12 years ago. At some point shortly after I came, I got a call that there was a, uh, a member of our church whose husband was not a member, not a Christian, dying in the hospital of emphysema. Would I go and see him before he died and share the gospel with him kind of like one more time? So I said, okay. And I heard about this guy, that he was, he was a very successful man. He was a, kind of a self-made man, very intellectual, and very skeptical about religion and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, okay, well, we'll see what I'm in for. So I go to the hospital. And if you can visualize this, I go, I go walking into the room. And here's this man on a bed. You know, they got him reclined a little bit like this. And he's got one of these, uh, like, Darth Vader uh, breathing masks on. Okay. So he's laying there like this, and, and what you hear is, you with me? Okay. So there he is, and he's laying there. On the other side of the bed is this woman in our church. And there she is, and I remember she's holding his hand, and she's like stroking his hand like this. Okay? So I step in, I take a seat, and I begin to do a little bit of small talk. Oh, hello, nice to meet you, uh, where are you from, kids, la la la, that kind of stuff. Well, I was just kind of getting into the small talk thing when he very abruptly stopped me, and I remember he said this, he goes, he says, Pastor, if you got something to say, you say it. <laughs> he said, because I got to go to the bathroom. exactly what he said. So I'm sitting in the chair and there was something about the way that he said it. It made me mad. It really did. And I don't know if this was righteous anger or not, but I had this sort of like, and I don't normally respond this way, but I did in this moment. I got up from my chair and I went over to him and I got right in his face and I pointed my finger at him. And this is what I said. I said, well, let me tell you something. I said, you are about to die. And apart from Jesus Christ, you're going straight to hell. And I said, and you can deny the reality of the gospel all that you want, but you cannot deny it in the life of your wife. And there she is, stroking his hand. <laughs> and when I got in his face, I remember his face kind of like contorted, like he, got, he was getting mad like this. And when I said, in the life of your wife, his face softened, and he looked over at her, and I won't forget what he said. He goes, yep, you're right. She's one fine cookie. That's exactly what he said. Think about all those years, quietly, in the home. Day in and day out, meals, home management, raising children. All those years, this woman, with no support spiritually from her husband at all, lived it out. To the extent that at the end of this man's life, he acknowledged 
that there was something to the gospel because he saw it in his wife. My dear friends, permanence is powerful. Perseverance is powerful. And it says to the unbelieving spouse and to the unbelieving world that there is something to the claims that we make that Jesus Christ can change your life. And this is what Paul is aiming at. And this is what our church family is aiming at, is to help our marriages speak the reality of the gospel. More on this in two weeks. Next week, stadium message. It's going to be great. Let's stand together.